Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at the Kerrang! issue of June 22nd, 1996. £1.50 every Wednesday. The cover stars for this week's Kerrang! are Metallica. Lovely picture of James Hetfeld looking mean in a microphone. World exclusive, Metallica load on the road. First US live report and full interview. Also this week, Nirvana, Courtney to tear down Kurt Death House. Pearl Jam exclusive, a mint on Free Fish, Vedder and the new LP. Porno for Pyros, White Zombie, Fu Manchu, Ministry, Kiss, Ash. Free tape for every reader. Karanga Ward, Gigs A Go-Go, Downset Manhole, Entombed and More, plus posters from Korn, Terrorvision, Bon Jovi, Leps and Rancid. I just need to go ahead straight away and apologise if you can hear any noises in the background of this recording. Um, it's a weekend and there's scaffolders again. I feel like I spend a lot of my intros on this podcast complaining about scaffolding. So the scaffolding in my block is down uh, where I live, uh, my flats. All gone. Brilliant. Went a few weeks ago. Thank God. Saw the back of them. Uh, but the houses opposite are having scaffolding down and it's just echoing and reverberating around the whole um like the whole street basically uh so if you can hear any banging noises or loud grunts from men <laughs> then that'll be the scaffolders at the back i'll try and pause whenever there's any you know ridiculous noise going on but yeah just in case just in case you can hear anything in the background that's uh me apologizing on behalf of the scaffolders because no one else is going to apologize for them if you would like to get in contact with us here at Karangback Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Karangback Issues, Twitter, KarangPod, and email karangbackissues at gmail.com. Also, if you would like to leave us a review, you can go ahead and do that on Apple Music or Spotify. Please leave us a nice review. I would really appreciate it. Um, you'll get 5Ks for that if you do it. Also, uh, back this week, we haven't had it for a couple of weeks because there hasn't been any singles reviewed. So if you would like to hear the singles that are reviewed this week, then you can go to the um, the metadata, the sort of, um, uh, on Spotify and Apple Music, you should be able to open it up and it tells you all about the episode and there should be a link there uh, to the Spotify playlist that our uh, friend Mark puts together for us. So there is that there and also should be published on Instagram or Twitter if you're looking for it. Uh, I'll put that up probably a couple of days after this episode comes out. Speaking of this episode, I'm done talking about scaffolders. So let's move on with this week's episode and issue of the magazine. So this issue was created with the following stimulant. Rip Roaring Live Shows from ZZ Top, Bark Market, Hoot and Feeder, Dave Everly and the Orange Fish Eggs, innumerable postcards from the road from Pit Shifter, an office visit from the Carlsberg Portable Beer Crew, Uncle Bob's Wedding Reception and Boys in Feather Boas, Cranked New Tattoos, uh, Paul Elliott Beige Espadrilles, now barred from the Kerrang! HQ. New albums from Dog Eat Dog and Screaming Trees. Please note that issue 602 would not have been possible without a fax from Jumpin' Jeff Gillespie. Full respect. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And we start this week where we always begin, news. Courtney Love is planning to pull down the greenhouse at her house where her husband Kurt Cobain killed himself two years ago. Courtney, 
Who fills the greenhouse is the biggest and most macabre draw to her home for Nirvana fans has apparently made the decision in a bid to protect the privacy and security of both herself and the couple's daughter Frances Bean. Demolition workers are expected to move in within the next few weeks. Fans and sightseers have flocked to the house in their thousands since Cobain shut himself in April 1994, and many spend hours standing in Seattle's Veretta Park, which is next to the house in the city's smart Denny Blaine district, and stare up at the building for hours. Benches in the park have become graffiti-filled monuments to the late Nirvana leader. Says Courtney, I'm knocking down the greenhouse where Kurt died because it's becoming a bigger attraction in the city than the Space Needle. While some fans do just stare at the greenhouse, many others are damaging my property. The erosion around my fence is unbelievable. Some of them try to climb the fence and there's beer cans littered everywhere in the park and icky debris. Who wants to walk their dog tripping over a syringe? This is my neighborhood park and I can't bring my daughter into it. I'm also worried for Francis Bean's safety. The park is intimidating now. It used to be relatively obscure, then Kurt killed himself and now it's a big deal. Love estimates she pays out $10,000 a month for security guards to patrol the border between her house and the park to keep out unwanted visitors. Pearl Jam will be touring Britain during late October. Karan can exclusively reveal that the Seattle Stars are currently setting up at least half a dozen dates over here and will make an official announcement very soon. It's been nearly three years since the band last played the UK. Since then, there have been a number of rumours that they were about to tour here, all of which proved to be incorrect. The latest reports are said to be the strongest indication yet that Pearl Jam will actually hit the UK before the end of the year. Although the venues for you Pearl Jam's UK trek have yet to be confirmed, Kerrang understands that the tour will include at least one show at London's Brixton Academy. Stay tuned for further info next week and look out for more news of the fourth Pearl Jam album, which is now scheduled for release through Epic on August 27th. It will be preceded by a new single. Metallica have dismissed reports that they used guitarist Kirk Hammett's semen to create the controversial artwork on the cover of fast-selling new album Load. When Kerrang caught up with Hammett in California this week, he was both amazed and amused by the story. It's not true, he pleaded. The photo we've used is a part of a series done by the artist Andres Serrano with different mixes of blood and semen. The one on the load sleeve is called Semen and Blood Free. I saw the artwork in a book at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and I was so intrigued by it that I told the rest of the band we should use it for the album cover. Lars immediately agreed, as did James. Jason didn't fancy the idea quite as much as the others, but we won him over. Load stormed straight into the UK charts at number one last week and has already sold more than 100,000 copies setting things up nicely for the band's October UK tour. On these dates, they'll be supported by Corrosion of Conformity. Baby Chaos, the acclaimed Britrock hopefuls have reluctantly parted company with drummer Davey Greenwood, who has been forced to leave the band because of health problems. Greenwood's illness, a recurring heart problem, resulted in the Scottish Quartet cancelling much of their April UK tour, but the band had hoped that the drummer would make a full recovery. Sadly, this hasn't been the case and Greenwood has reluctantly thrown in the towel. Clearly upset by the departure of his bandmate, Chaos vocalist guitarist Chris Gordon told Kerrang, Davey's a great drummer. It wasn't an easy decision for anyone to let him go, but he's been ordered not to do anything strenuous like touring. Greenwood will make his final appearance with Baby Chaos at the Phoenix Festival on July 14th. In the meantime, anyone who thinks they can fill Greenwood's shoes should call Nick Gordon on 0141 550 09 Ash have been officially banned from Nottingham Rock City after a number of incidents following a recent show. The young Brook Rock stars were said to have let off three fire extinguishers in the venue and also to have caused damage to their dressing room. 
This poor behaviour led to Rock City imposing an indefinite ban on any future gigs there by the Irish trio. Ash, however, aren't concerned in the slightest. They issued Kerrang with a following short and sweet statement. Oh yeah, who cares? Ash will release a new single called, rather ironically, Oh Yeah, through Infectious Records on June 24th. Taken from the band's number one album, 1977, the single would be available on 7-inch vinyl, cassette and CD formats. The first two formats will also include a different version of Oh Yeah plus the songs T-Rex and Everywhere Is All Around. The CD will feature Everywhere Is All Around as well as a version of ABBA's Does Your Mother Know, originally recorded for a Radio 1 session. Alice in Chains are set to release an album called Alice in Chains Unplugged through Columbia on July 15th. The album features the band's MTV Unplugged performance recorded in April at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, plus three tracks which were not included in the TV broadcast. The album track listing will include Nutshell, Brother, No Excuses, Sludge Factory, Down in the Hole, Angry Chair, Rooster, Got Me Wrong, Heaven Beside You, Wood Frogs and Over Now, plus a brand new song, The Killer Is Me. The four-piece of vocalist Lane Staley, guitarist Jerry Cantrell, bassist Mike Inez and drummer Sean Kinney were joined for this performance by old friend Scott Olsen on additional guitar. However, the band are no nearer to announcing touring plans to back up the Alice in Chains LP, which has sold more than a million copies in the States. Guitarist Cantrell has been busy, having written and recorded the song Leave Me Alone for the soundtrack to the new Jim Carrey comedy film The Cable Guy, which opens in the UK on July 12th. American news starting this week with Don K in New York. Kiss might be back in makeup for a reunion tour, but there is a new studio album in the can with Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley joined by guitarist Bruce Kulick and drummer Eric Singer. Now, this is officially due out next year, but somehow a tape has gotten out and one European bootlegger is apparently busy pressing up CDs of the thing. I haven't heard the album yet, but it's said to be dark brooding and nodding in the direction of grunge a la Alice in Chains. The record is called Carnival of Souls and has been finished for several months, but has been put on hold whilst the reunion business gets underway. Corrosion and Conformity have had the US release date of their new album Wise Blood pushed back to September to align it more closely with the band's return home after the UK and European tour supporting Metallica. That trek doesn't end until October, but at least this way the record won't be coming out here while Corrosion and Conformity are thousands of miles away. Wise Blood will still come out in Britain and Europe in August. Rob Zombie's kid brother has serviced in a band called Power Man 5000 and the A&R types were out in force when the band played a show at CBGB's last week. The band are a lean, Spartan-sounding metal grunge fusion with a slight rap tinge to the vocals. Not a million miles away from White Zombie actually, and Rob apparently is involved in managing Power Man 5000. Rumour of the week, our Danzig about to leave American recordings and sign to Hollywood Records. Don't know if that's true, but it raises the interesting question of just how Disney, who own Hollywood, would react to having evil Elvis, Glenn Danzig, as part of their family. Bambi meets Satan. Hmm. Next up, we have Lisa Johnson in LA. Holes Melissa Alfdemur and Eric Erlandson, the Beastie Boys, Down By Law and actress Sofia Coppola, remember her in The Godfather Part 3, were all crammed into the sold-out Spaceland Club in Los Angeles last week when a band called Butter played. Butter are an occasional band featuring graphic artist Mike Mills, his work has appeared on Sonic Youth album's leaves, Russell Simmons, his day job is with the John Spencer Blues Explosion, plus members of 
Sibo Matto and Skeleton Key. And they have something of a celebrity roadie in Sean Lennon, son of John and a big fan of the band. Incidentally, Sean's mum Yoko Ono also turned up but she apparently fell asleep in a dark corner. Well, either that or she was meditating. Whatever, butter were not to her taste but everyone else seemed to have a good time. Talking to Spaceland, as we were, the venue played host to a release party for the compilation album What A Drag, featuring bands from the Silver Lake Los Feliz area of LA. Big attractions were a band called Extra Fancy, a crazy new signing to the Atlantic label, their debut album Cinnamon is out now in the state. The band gained notoriety last year when Pulp Fiction star John Travolta sued them for using an unauthorised new drawing of him on the cover of a single. The Fastbacks must be one of the luckiest bands in America at the moment. Not only are the veteran Seattle band currently out on the road over here supporting the presidents of the USA, but later this year they'll be heading out on the road with Pearl Jam at the personal request of Eddie Vedder. The Fastbacks have just put out their new album New Mansions in Sound on the Sub Pop label and the chance of two with Pearl Jam could be the biggest break they've had in their 17 year career. And finally this week, we join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. This year's NBA battle for basketball supremacy here in the States has not only attracted the biggest television audience ever for sport, but it's also been the most rock and roll series of all time. The face-off between Michael Jordan and his Chicago Bulls and the Seattle Supersonics has certainly held the attention of Seattle's other bunch of highly paid stars, the musicians. When the Sonics won through to their first NBA final since 1979, one of the first fans to rush on court to congratulate them was season ticket holder Jeff Amen, whom you might recall also plays bass with Pearl Jam and he was captured on film by NBC cameras screaming and shouting, oh man, oh man. When the finals began between the Bulls and the Sonics, immense fellow jammer Eddie Vedder, now sporting a goatee, was right there in the stands, getting his ticket from Bulls bad boy Dennis Rodman. A major Pearl Jam fan, Rodman known for his multiple body piercings, tattoos and rainbow coloured hair, paid tribute to his favourite rock band by having one of their logos dyed into his blonde hair, alongside an aged ribbon and other causes close to his heart. To coincide with all this basketball action, the presidents of the USA decided the time was right to issue their tribute to the Sonics, the song Super Sonics as a limited edition single. Initially intended as a song just to be played on local Seattle radio stations and at Sonics home games, the band, all huge fans of the team, decided this was as good a time as any to release it as a single. Joined on the song by commentator Kevin Calabro, the voice of the Sonics, the track includes the immortal line, Seattle Supersonics are basketball bionic and probably the finest couplet Chris Ballew will ever write. Up Court Fast, Break Invaders, and the Slam Dunk Terminators. The sleeve features a picture of the trio in full Sonics regalia sat centre court at Seattle's key arena. All proceeds from the single, available only through the band's fan club and the Sonics team shop, are being donated to charity. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! On location, this week, Morat takes Ricky Warwick to the Tattoo Expo. It started off as a good idea, they always do. With the almighty now sadly defunct, vocalist guitarist Ricky Warwick is currently putting together a smart new band and we thought it'd be a marvellous idea to head to the Boozer to help him celebrate. And what better place than one of London's top rock pubs, the Outpost in Camden where the Outcast Motorcycle Club are holding their first annual Tattoo Expo. Motorbikes, tattoos, loud music, a live band and a few lagers. What more could you ask for? Whose round is it? Sadly, this is where the plan goes down the shitter. Overwhelmingly eager, Ricky and I arrive at the all day event early and start sinking beers at our worrying rate. 
Within a couple of hours, we are hopelessly pissed. Ricky wanders off to check out the stalls and comes back with a cheap, dodgy ring that later turns his finger an attractive shade of green. And a pack of Rizzlers the size of Belgium. Oh dear. The outpost's huge six-table pool room has been converted for the expo into a temporary tattoo studio, where six or seven artists, including Adam from Tribalized, Trog from Original Sin, and Michelle from Lau Hardy's New Wave Tattoo Studio, are keenly buzzing away. Ricky checks out a few designs and watches some of the artists at work, then announces in a rather slurred manner that he's going to get a tattoo. Luckily, Ricky chooses a fairly unregrettable tribal design. Don't try this at home, kids. It's not a good idea to get tattoos done when you're drunk. And Michelle, who has been chosen to do the job because of her looks and not because Ricky's seen her work before, turned out to be a creditable tattooist. This could all have gone horribly wrong, but Mr. Warwick is pleased with the results. That was the first one I've ever had done when I was drunk, announces Ricky. But you know what it's like when you get in there and hear the buzz of the needles. I just wanted to get a tattoo. I want to go up to get some more tribal stuff done. My first one was a Celtic tribal thing done by Mickey Sharp from Birmingham in about 1986. The majority of Ricky's tattoos were done by the legendary London artist Lau Hardy, who has also worked on Biohazard, numerous well-known punk bands and me, and by Martin Clark, who also works from Lau's studio. Ricky had to get his almighty one changed though because the band's original logo was very similar to the Hells Angels infamous death head. They were really cool about it, he says. Sadly, neither Ricky or I remember seeing the exposed band, the legendary Undertakers, but we never did find out who won the prizes for the best tattoos. But various people recognise Ricky and buy him drinks and before we stagger back to my place to make use of those cigarette papers, he signed DJ Mickey G's almighty record collection in return for hearing Do You Understand? Belt went out through the outpost's sizeable PA. The next morning, a terrible groaning noise emerges from my sofa. Ricky Warwick has woken up after a night on the piss with Kerrang and he has a serious hangover. There is another groan. Oh Christ, says Ricky. I've got a tattoo. We now come to this week's cover stars Metallica. It's a scorching hot day in California and Metallica, the world's biggest rock band, have just announced on the radio that they'll be playing free, free gigs today. Stefan Girazzi smothers himself in sun cream and catches load on the road. San Jose, California, Tuesday, June the 4th, 1996, 3.45pm. I just thought they were going to play the album over a PA and shit, but this is fucking too cool. Troy Davis, 17, supposed student, is having an orgasm in Oak Ridge Mall parking lot. It's like this. You're coming there in your dirty clothes early in the morning, shoving some Cocoa Pops down your neck and mainlining coffee to get you into gear for the day ahead. When the radio makes an announcement that cuts a path right to your ears and knocks you off your chair, Metallica will be playing a free show today at the Tower Records store parking lot in San Jose at the Oak Ridge Mall to celebrate the release today of their new album Load. That's the announcement. Completely out of the blue. You don't really believe it. And then your mates call you and go, shit. So you head down to Oak Ridge Mall at noon and spy a dirty, great, big flatbed juggernaut on which a shitload of musical equipment is being set up. You rush to the payphone and tell more of your mates. Suddenly, there's people all over town complaining to the boss that they've got a bad back or a headache and before you know it, in 80 degrees of crisp blue-skied Californian heat, you're standing in a parking lot with roughly 8,000 other people wanting to see Metallica put on a free show comprising this set list. So what? Creeping death. Bitch. Until it sleeps. Sad but true. And whiplash. In a word, unfucking believable it was basically an idea that came from our management, explained Metallica's tanned frontman James Hetfield as we meet up outside the band's rehearsal space in San Rafael to begin our coverage of this incredible day. 
We thought about a warm up to a few other things, but this one really clicked. It was just a fucking cool idea. The idea was simple. On the same day as Load was released in the US, Metallica would play three very special shows in one day. On the back of a truck outside different tower record stores in the Bay Area cities of San Jose, Concord and Sacramento. Imagine if you heard that Metallica were playing a free gig in the parking lot of the Chichester Alprice and you'll be close to gauging the enormity of the occasion. Aboard the minivan heading towards the San Jose gigs and myself, Kerrang snapper Mark Lioa, two chaps from US Glossy Mag Entertainment Weekly, Metallica's tour manager and his assistant, a guy from Q Prime Metallica's management, a bloke from Elektra Records and James Hetfield, Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich and guitarist Kirk Hammett. Bassist Jason Newstead will be meeting us in San Jose. It seems that on his way home from rehearsal the previous night, Jason got held up in freeway traffic incident where a husband shot his wife while they were driving. Jason ended up being trapped in a crime scene and was forced to sleep in his truck until 6am. Before leaving the rehearsal rooms, we learned that the Concord show had suddenly been cancelled due to no one being able to secure the necessary noise permits from the governors of this suburban conservative town. Still, with San Jose and Sacramento still on schedule, everyone's only mildly disappointed. As we trundle towards San Jose, Ulrich is unusually quiet. He explains later that he was withdrawn because it makes him more focused on the show and able to play better. Not that anyone's mood bothers anyone much these days. Indeed, everyone seems remarkably comfortable with the rest of the band and their idiosyncrasies. A lot of that has to do with a year off, says Hammett. The time we took to find out who we were and find that we did have lives beyond Metallica. Plus, we uh, also know that we won't be touring that long ever again. And just knowing that from the start helps make things much mellower. We know there'll be an end to this tour and that makes it easier to enjoy it. Hetfield is grinning at the prospect of the potential chaos that lies before him. I thought it'd be fucking cool to drive along the Bay Bridge, suddenly turn around, stop, open up the truck and go, okay, let's go fuckers, he laughs. It calls huge chaos and piss off the commuters. Uh, sorry dear, he deadpans, I'm going to be late for dinner because there's some fucking metal band playing a gig here on the freeway. The air turns blue when a message reaches the band that Sacramento law enforcement officials and politicians are causing major permit problems. It's quickly agreed that Sacramento has to be played at all costs, by whatever means necessary. There's a possibility that the band could transfer to the parking lot of a local arena in the middle of nowhere, at which point a variety of cell phones go ballistic. Hetfield roars defiantly, let's just fucking do the tower thing whatever happens, even if they shut us down, let's just go for it, let's just fucking stick to the plan. Just like that. On arrival in San Jose, the band immediately go into their tiny dressing room, whilst Leah Lower and I take a wander through the parking lot. Yeah, heard about it on the KSJO radio, says one tattoo fan, wife and children in tow, and we just came right on down. Didn't even call in sick, just didn't show. Fuck it, they're here for us, so we're damn well gonna be here for them. 17-year-old student Wayne Alvarez had a passion that goes deeper still. I wanna fuck James Hetfield in the ass because I love him, he screams. I later play this message back to Hetfield and offer to match make. He gracefully declines. The general consensus among these insane Metallica fans is that they like what they've heard of the new album. The Metallica return like this to give something back to their fans is more than appreciated despite 12 million albums sold. The wealth, the fame, the Grammys, Metallica still care and they're touching their fans right now in a way that they could only have dreamed of. And even though a few fans are a touch skeptical about what they had heard about Load, all are committed to buying it. Why? Because it's a Metallica album and they're here for us. So fuck yeah, we'll buy it. No one seems to care too much about the new look or the haircuts. It makes me laugh when I read that we are wearing makeup, chuckles Hetfield. 
Don't they mean them, he nods at his bandmates, while he obviously doesn't share the rest of Metallica's enthusiasm to try on a bit of mascara, a feather boa, a nipple ring, or a few tattoos. Hetfield is exceedingly happy that Metallica are moving on and changing, in what he views as a natural way, without losing the plot. Some of the questions we've had have been fucking great, he says. In Japan, someone said to me, you got your hair cut. Uh, yes. Then they fucking said, so you cannot headbang anymore. What? I said I could still shake my head with short hair, but that my hair would no longer bang. At 3.50pm, Metallica walk on stage for the very first gig of the Load on the Road tour. There's barely enough room for Ulrich to get behind his drum kit, but never let it be said that Metallica lacked production value. Taking up the entire 15 foot wide area behind the instruments, there is an interesting backdrop comprised of a flag with a Don't Tread on Me, US Army Snake, a handcrafted scrawled Alcoholica banner, a skull and crossbones, and a US flag. Who needs pyros? Hetfield, in combat shorts, plain white vest and shades, is clearly charged by the already moshing fans. Afternoon, he hollers. Hope you don't mind if we play a few fucking tunes, but even if you do, so fucking what? The crowd goes mental as people, shoes, and even shopping trolleys are propelled into the air. There's no let up for the next 30 minutes as the band whip out a muscular set, and when they finish with Whiplash, hundreds of the band's longtime fans show the youngsters how it's done and stage their own version of a tornado. It is all from the back, an extraordinary sight. We should tour like this, laughs Hammett, without too much opposition. There is a rush for autographs. Before long, the police decide enough is enough. A line of them advance, some 30 wide, across the parking lot, moving people along. Just as the police seem to have succeeded in dispersing the crowd, Ulrich looks up and decides to stroll over and sign stuff, just to push the heat up. Police are ignored by eager fans and tensions rise again before order is restored. Ulrich grins. On the freeway to Sacramento for the second free show of the day, we look outside to see a car driving dangerously close. Inside is a man intent on getting his guitar signed, hanging out of his car while driving at 70 miles an hour. When he takes his hands off the wheel to hold the guitar out of his window, our driver realises it's time to switch lanes. As we approach Sacramento, we hear that the permit has been refused. The band will not be allowed to play outside Tower, but the owners have given their full assurance that the record store will take any liability. Tower are desperate for the band to play, but what if the plug is pulled? What if there's a riot? Let's just fucking do it anyway, booms Hetfield. As we stop outside the town for some food, the band are pumped up and everyone is ready. In that confident, assured, metallica way, that the show will go on. They are right. After lots of handshaking, smiling and a few well-chosen words from the band's management, everything seems to have been smoothed over. A crowd of about 5,000 has gathered in the parking lot, along with just about every major American news network you can imagine, to see Metallica whip out an even more vicious mini-set. Hetfield, never missing a beat, dryly points out how the crowd can amuse themselves in the mall behind them after the show. Hey there, all you who don't have the album can buy it from Tower. Get some beers in the bar, go get the new haircut at the barbers and finish off with some drunken bowling. After the show, inside the tower store, the manager is incredulous. Since midnight, we've sold about 750 copies of the album and two thirds of those have been in the last 40 minutes, he says. Some people were buying three, four copies for friends and whoever. It's been nuts in here. At midnight, the band are invited back on a free shopping spree. As we finally get set to leave at 3.30am, the band head off home in their vehicles to begin the journey home. You know, says James Hetfield, as he climbs wearily into his van, when everyone stopped talking about fucking haircuts and makeup and all the other shit, there'll just be the album. And that, whichever way you look at it, is the only thing that counts. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! 
Lives, and my god, there's a lot of Metallica in this week's Kerrang. The first concert reviewed this week is Metallica, supported by The Behemoth at Slim's San Francisco on Monday, June the 11th. This one is reviewed by Stefan Shirazi, and of course this one gets 5 out of 5. Filthy six-string miscreant Jim Martin is back, and this time it's for real. After a million and one four starts, the ex-Faith No More guitarist and his band The Behemoth have finally realised there's no time left to fuck around. Consequently, tonight, The Behemoth are little short of monstrous. Their short snappy set sees them pull through the likes of Navigator and Mexican Sandwich in truly awe-inspiring metallic fashion. Big, hairy and twice as large as life, The Behemoth are up and lumbering again. And so to Metallica, as they take the stage for their first indoor date since last year's LA2 show, the initial differences are obvious. There's the hair of course and the tattoos, piercings and other assorted concessions to alternative culture. But the biggest difference is wholly intangible. Brimming with confidence, boiling with aggression, ready to deliver a blast of songs that encompass a truly astonishing career, Metallica 96 is a leaner, tougher and more focused machine than ever before. These days, Metallica's heaviness and strength lies in the power of their material, not its speed. The songs aired from the new Load Opus, Ain't My Bitch, Until It Sleeps, King Nothing, A Magnificent Beast. Live, sinewy, but heavier than a sack full of spanners. And it's these songs, as much as the older stuff, that gets the ecstatic crowd worked up into a heaving, flaming frenzy. That's not to say the old songs suffer when compared with the new material. On the contrary, an acoustic Nothing Else Matters featuring James Hetfield alone on a stool and Fade to Black, songs 6 and 12 years old respectively both sound as if they were written yesterday. Heavier numbers like For Whom the Bell Tolls, Master of Puppets, Sad But True and Harvester of Sorrow are all conquering, all powerful, all performed at the perfect tempo, but sharpened and honed to a point way that lies way beyond the feral brutality of their original incarnations. And it's not just the songs that are better. Lars Ulrich, the eternal Gurner, hits his drums with more flair and skill than he ever has before. When he does make a mistake, and it's rare these days, he now has the confidence and the ability to immediately fall back into the groove of the song. Kirk Hammett, a mess of piercings, tattoos and wild hair, plays with the consummate ease of an artist at the pinnacle of his talents. And Jason Eusted, perpetually overlooked by everyone from the press to his own bandmates, still provides the rock-solid foundation on which the band construct their monolithic sound. But Metallica in 1996 is very much James Hetfield's show. While Kirk has his tattoos, lip spikes and black silky shirts, Lars, his nipple ring and sleek new haircut and Jason Newsted, his wizened old blues records, it's Hetfield and his towering presence that gives the band the edge it still needs. On stage, his strength, power and projection is more monstrous than ever. He's less afraid than ever before to show emotion, to let it spill from his throat or flow into his fingers. And the result is a man, and consequently a band, more emotionally connected to itself and its massive audience than ever before. As the hyperspeed whirlwind of motor breath crashes to its tumultuous finale and Metallica leave the tiny stage, James Hetfield allows himself a small laugh. With an album like Load and songs like this, with a band like Metallica, he can afford to. The next review this week is for Ministry, supported by the Jesus Lizard at the Warfield San Francisco on Tuesday, June the 1st. Reviewed by Stefan Chirazzi, this one also gets 5 out of 5. More often than not, the Jesus Lizard are a truly enjoyable, not to mention provocative live experience. But not tonight. Tonight, the Jesus Lizard are boring. Why? Mainly because it's the crowd. Aren't really into it. 
Maybe it's because the band aren't really into it. Whatever the reason, the Jesus Lizard failed to take off. They play a few songs, Yell dives into the crowd, it's over. Yawn. Ministry, on the other hand, come on stage and blow everyone in the building, through the walls and all over the streets. Like white zombies, uglier, more evil older brothers, they construct dense walls of metallic sludge that are as entertaining as they are deadly. And tonight, after the Jesus Lizard's tired posturings, Ministry are so crushingly loud, so deliciously evil, so jaw-droppingly on, it's unbelievable. Rumours of the death of Al Jorgensen have been greatly exaggerated. He remains a frontman who could kick the devil's ass wearing a crimson smoking jacket and fluffy slippers. A rip-snorting motherfucker with a voice ripped from the throat of Satan and a look to match. It's impossible not to be mesmerised by the man's outrageously charismatic performance. Even Paul Barker, possibly the nicest, smartest man you could ever wish to meet, is dragged into his bandmate's satanic circus, looking and playing like a sleazy lowlife asshole with menace in his eyes and murder on his mind. But never forget that aside from providing a superb sonic blast, Ministry are grade A performers who wear their stage horns with conviction. There's copious black humour in those Chicago veins, displayed admirably when the band embark upon a string of five of their most OTT songs, climaxing with Hero. And when they decide to go all epic on us, they're um, in the grandiose desolation of Filth Pig, they do so with a truly magnificent ugliness. Exciting and exhausting, Ministry of What Metal Machine Music in the 90s is all about. If you don't see them in July, let me have the pleasure of calling you a loser in advance. And finally this week, we have the Butthole Surfers live at Kentish Town Forum London on Thursday, May the 30th. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this one gets 3 out of 5. Ecstasy Boy Wants to Dance. Oh yes, Ecstasy Boy Wants to Dance. And I'm the only fucker on this balcony that he wants to do his ridiculous dance in front of. Amazingly enough, however, there's not a lot to miss on the stage. You'd expect the butthole servers to be a maelstrom of bug eyes, bodily fluids and hyperactivity. A picture of absolute insanity. Tonight, they fall disappointingly short of this. Singer Gibby Haynes is either tired, out of his brains or both. He looks like he's at a sound check. Furthermore, he seems obsessed with a box of vocal sound effects which is beside him on a stand. He spends 75% of his time with one hand on the box adjusting his voice for maximum distortion. He makes no attempt to stir the crowd, although in truth, they don't seem to require much goading. They're going ballistic down there. God knows, they have some fine songs. They start with a laid-back brewfest of new song Pepper, then explode into birds, the opening song from their very fine new album Electric Larry Land. And everything seems fine with the world. But between here and the encore, there's a large dead wood factor. And as the attention begins to wander, you start watching the security guards persistently moving people out of the aisles. Some scuzzy bloke kicks a woman up the backside for no apparent reason. Her boyfriend fetches a security guard. A minor scene unfolds. But hey, back to the show. The blazing encore tunes definitely go some way towards making up for the slack midsection. And guitarist Paul Leary admits that this is the first gig the band have played in a fucking long time. That'll explain it then. But perhaps bands might introduce a system whereby if they don't think their gig will be much good, they'll refund fans some money on the door. The service should be brilliant tonight rather than merely good. Ecstasy Boy loves them. But then again, he'd love the sound of someone banging two dustbin lids together. The rest of us just go home disappointed. Look who's turking. The guy on the right in the funny hat is none other than Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament, and he's having a right old laugh in Istanbul. 
Talking up his smart new side band, Free Fish. That is, until Mike Peake walks into his hugely expensive hotel and shouts, is Eddie Vedder mad or what? Jefferman, bass player with Pearl Jam, is sitting opposite me in the luxurious lounge of the Serragon Palace, one of the world's most expensive hotels. He has, surprise surprise, a hat on his head, a very expensive cup of coffee in his hand, and he's currently gazing out at the impressive Istanbul skyline, which reflects grimly off the pollution addled Bosphorus River. Jeff is waiting to talk to me. Jeff, a good looking average sized man of medium build, is happy to jabber on about the crappy weather, the miserable economic state of Istanbul, his new sideband free fish, and most other things one cares to sling his way. In fact, Jeff, Dear, dear Jeff, the man of a hundred great basslines and quite possibly the godfather of this Seattle scene is up for chatting about anything, except Pearl Jam. To be honest, all he really wants to talk about is free fish, a cold whacked out spiritual kind of trip, while we, if we're being frank about this, are also well keenish to talk about Eddie Vedder. In fact, the temptation to leap in with, go on Jeff, tell us about the new Pearl Jam record, it's almost overwhelming. But we've been told that, as opening gambits go, it's a bit of a non-starter. Mr. Amen smiles, stares coolly into my eyes and waits for an opening question. The tape recorder rolls. So Jeff, tell us about Free Fish. The Free Fish story is a two blokes bonding and a session drummer playing on the album sort of deal. Jeff met singer Robbie Robb when the latter's band Tribe After Tribe, big in South Africa, supported Pearl Jam in the States in 92. The pair headed off into the mountains to camp, talk philosophy and quite possibly frolic naked in ice cold freshwater lakes. Robbie pulls one of his dreadlocks from out of his mouth and tries to explain. We just found out that we were into the same writers, the same philosophers, and had the same thoughts. You're telepathic. We shared a sensitivity to similar subjects. Some of the ordeals we've been through in relationships with women, conversations that guys don't usually have. Right, lots of crying then. Yeah, it was the odd moan and groan, but there was a lot of celebration too. Jeff and free fish drummer Richard Nice Guy Stuverud known each other for years and after deciding that it would be a beautiful thing to get together and jam the trio quickly realized they'd written more than 30 songs says jeff we recorded most of the stuff in a teeny 16 track studio where a lot of the old sub pop stuff was recorded the first records by green river jeff and pearl jam guitarist stone gossard's first real band and soundgarden but there was never any grand plan come on someone must have said hmm let's do an album there just came a point where we had so much music and so many tapes floating around, he shrugged. I was at a point in my life where I felt I had too many loose ends, and Free Fish was one thing that I thought I could sort out quite easily. Is this some back to my roots trip? Sure, and that's the theory behind going into our tour. We're doing 20 shows in the States in really small venues. We want it to be intimate. People chanting? No. Any plans to play the UK? No. No change there then. Let's face it, you never play the UK even with Pearl Jam. Oh, we'll be coming back, he smiles. We forgot how bad the food was. Free Fish, the record, is a funny little beggar. The general Karen consensus on first listen was arse. This quickly softened to It's Okay and was soon replaced with It's a Fucking Beauty amongst the more spiritually tuned in members of the Karen team. I've no idea who like the record, Jeff Ventures. There's bound to be people who are like, how dare he go outside of the Golden Pentacle, right? Initially, my feeling was, I don't care what people think, but then I wouldn't be putting it out for people to comment on or give it to magazines to review if we didn't kind of wonder what people were thinking. Whenever anyone says anything really critical or mean, you're affected by that, and it hurts. What about your buddies in your other band? Well, Stone called me up within a few hours of receiving the tape and said, it's amazing, and that made me feel really good. 
There's been times where Stone and I have been really competitive and it was nice for him to say he liked what I'd done. Does it bother the rest of the band that people will be latching onto Free Fish because of their behatted millionaire bass player? No, Hoots Robbie, that's fine. We're exploiting him. But when we play live, I'll have a big curtain in front of me so you can just see a silhouette, cracks Jeff. But what does being in Free Fish enable you to do that you can't do in your other bands? Play lead guitar, Jeff Hoots. I play my first lead on this record. You can tell, it's absolutely dreadful. Robbie, yeah, and you just can't pay for that. I played such a good lead on this record, they wanted me to play lead on the new Pearl Jam record, Jeff insists. But I said, no way, I could only do that in Free Fish. No guitar, but I'll sing, eh? Eddie old son, get in the kitchen. Hey, he cooks up a good curry, says Jeff. And suddenly we're talking about Pearl Jam. Ice cold Jeff is smiling. The guys are relaxed and we're having a right old time. Look chaps, I don't mean to be rude, but I've traveled 2000 miles, nearly been hospitalized by a manic Istanbul cab driver and been laughed at by the locals for my ham-handed attempts at haggling. Jeff, old pal, how's about five minutes to chat to you about Pearl Jam? For three dangerous seconds, cool, calm Jeff Ament looks like he could kill a man with his bare hands. He shifts uncomfortably in his seat and I fear, momentarily, that this suave looking grunge demigod may punch me in the face. Richard and Robbie stand up, shake my hand and leave. Jeff, he stares at me. Just a few questions, long pause. Okay. Here goes, five minutes, off the cuff, almost verbatim. Why haven't Pearl Jam played the UK for so long? We just haven't played live that much at all. Part of the problem is that we went to the UK three times on the first record and we kind of felt we'd done Europe. That's pretty much it. Last year we couldn't get the US tour off the ground because of problems with ticketing, but I think we've got it pretty well sussed out now. I think the only way we can tour properly is if we just concentrate on playing. In the past we've been so busy dealing with security and merchandising and shit. This time, we won't have our hands in that stuff. Who's the control freak? Stone? Nope, I'd say that Eddie and I deal with a lot of that stuff. Who's your mate in the band? I'm friends with each of them in different ways. I think I relate to Eddie and Jack more than Mike or Stone, even though I've known them too longer. But I'm probably closer to Stone right now than anyone, because we have so much history together. Is Eddie misunderstood or a mad bloke? I think he's pretty misunderstood. He has such a quiet, mystical quality and that allows people a wide range of opinions. I really don't think he gives a shit and that puts people off even more. Does he ever call you up and say, Jeff, let's go for a beer? Yeah, actually quite a few times. Lately, we've probably all hung out more in the last year than any other time since the band started. I think we've loosened up a lot. Whose decision was it to stop doing Pearl Jam interviews? There was a point where we were on the fucking cover of every magazine in the world and it was like we were being shoved down everybody's throats. The focus started to be taken away from the music. All we've done in not doing interviews or pictures or videos is try and put the focus back on the music and let some of the younger bands utilise that medium. People know who we are. Yes, but from a fan's perspective, it looks like you don't care. Well, yeah, and I think now that we're in a situation that we feel like we're a band and you'll see more interviews and stuff like that. And that's it. Five minutes with a bassist from a Seattle band called Pearl Jam who don't do interviews. You know, says Jeff, rising from his chair, we're going to be around for a long time. People might be upset that we haven't played over the last year or two, but we're going to play shows and we'll be around. Footnote, I have seen Jeff and Men without his hat on. Later, after the interview, we're invited back to the band's ultra-luxury hotel for a meal and end up sitting next to him. I eagerly try to engage Jeff in all manner of potentially very interesting conversations, but he's not keen. Though polite, he looks uninterested to the point of tears. I, however, have an ace up my sleeve, 
I can wreak my revenge by revealing precisely what the immense hood head looks like, minus either a hat or a bandana. Sadly, he is not bald. Bastard. Feedback, and the letter of the week begins. Due to the lack of decent posters in Kerrang, we thought it was our duty to send you this little contribution. Hiawatha and Michael Bishop's hernia belt. So, the picture that's been sent in is a picture of Ash, uh, but there's been heads cut out. So it's Bill Clinton, Lars Fredrickson, and James Hetfield over the faces, and it says, the United Prats of the USA. This, I thought last week's letter of the week was the worst letter ever read in Kerrang. This is undoubtedly the worst letter of the week that Krang have ever pulled out. It's ridiculous. I don't even understand why this is in the magazine. Anyway, let's move on. I saw Ash at Wolverhampton Civic Hall and they were brilliant. The venue was pretty crowded and although it wasn't as serious as the Smashing Pumpkins gig in Dublin, I still ended up getting trampled. I thought about Pumpkins fan Bernadette O'Brien's death and realised how easily it could happen again. It's true. What the Pumpkins fan from Dublin said in Kerrang. Everyone is on a really great vibe so people get trampled without anybody realising what's happening. 17 is too young to die. One last thing. Is Billy really planning to leave the Pumpkins in three years? I can't express how much the band means to me and I'll never come to terms with it if they split. Alex Corgan. I like heavy music but the hard man image on the scene really pisses me off. All this bullshit patriotism about certain American towns like Oakland has got fuck all to do with music. And the hard man image gets taken the wrong way by some fans who go around acting intensely hostile at all times. Grow up, plastic people. Be human. Be yourself. Respect yourself. Respect others. And remember, this is England. Andrew Humanoid. Isn't it funny that all American bands are starting to suck? Metallica are sounding more like a jazz band, and Raging the Machine sound like Snoop Doggy Dog. The only real metal bands on the continent are Slayer Machine Head and Deicide. The more aggressive bands like Napalm Death and Face Down are from Europe. I agree with Slayer's Kerry King. Metal is losing its aggression because loads of wusses are being crap like Pearl Jam and Terrorvision. Steve Reed, ho. I'd like to set a few things straight uh, with all the sad Maiden, Sepultura and Napalm fans. Wake up to 1996. I'm not saying metal is dead, but it has to change. If you want a bit of bad attitude, heavy guitar riffs, a hell of a lot of humour and some really gorge long-haired blokes turn on and tune into Terrorvision. They're one of the most innovative and individual bands ever to come out of the entire universe. Maiden, Sepultura and Napalm cronies can cringe in their armchairs and retirement homes. Terrorvision rule, with the exception of Bon Jovi, obviously. Louisa, a devoted Kerrang reader. I've noticed you've recently been printing posters of new bands like Fluffy and Drain, but there have been none of Three Colours Red and whatever. Two of the best new bands in Britain. Is this because Fluffy and Drain are girls? I think it might be. Laura Lamorna. Uh, yes, editor. I'm mourning the demise of a once great band, Liquor. I've removed the metal from their name as I'm buggered if their new single, Until It Sleeps, contains any. So much for being originators. What do they do? A fucking crappy techno remix. They're probably trying to sound like Flavor of the Month, The Prodigy. Kerrang readers over the age of 14 may remember when Metallica were the masters of face-shredding metal classics like Creeping Death and Battery. I can't imagine Cliff Burton shaking his flares to until it sleeps. Liquor, you're welcome to the trendy wankers you're pandering to. Another band abandoning metal. Watch No Remorse on the Cliffhamore video and James Hetfield says, This is about all the fakes and posers. 
exactly what liquor have become. The Uslan Bird Order Shop. P.S. They look like Reservoir Dogs rejects. Ill communication. He's the brains behind America's Lollapalooza Festival. He's a respected musical genius and he's absolutely barking mad. He's Paula for Pyrus main man Perry Farrell and he's about to give Murray Engelhart a lesson in the super unknown. Have you ever seen a ghost? Perry Farrell, Pornif Papyrus's wild-eyed, trippy frontman stares at me, intent and demanding, waiting for an answer. He has the kind of stare that makes Medusa's frosty gaze uh, seem positively inviting. He looks rather like Car, the hypnotic snake in Disney's The Jungle Book. Once the leading light in cult LA band Jane's Addiction, arguably one of the most influential rock bands of the past decade, Farrell went on to make an even bigger name for himself as the pioneering entrepreneurial brainchild behind America's legendary Lollapalooza Festival. And right here, now, in Sydney, Australia, in 1996, he's sitting opposite me asking me about ghosts. Have you ever seen ghosts or been encountered with ghosts? No. Oh, he replies, sounding disappointed. Well, do you believe in ghosts? Sure. Alright, he smiles relieved. I think everyone soon enough will be contacted if they haven't already been. When we were recording our new album, the mesmerising Good God's Urge, the studio was built on an Indian burial ground. The spirits were definitely around there. We all saw ghosts. There was a couple of people who saw this woman in a pink dress and nobody knows who she was. I saw twins, but didn't know who they were either. Uh, well, I guess there must be another world that no one knows exists. And you're probably kept from it for a reason, says Farrell knowingly. But maybe the reason is disappearing. And I think it might have to do with us becoming a better race of people. That's what my hope is. And that's why I'm going to go after what I want. Because I want that to happen to all of us. I want us to be in a better place. And if it takes putting out the frequency, that'll do it. Then I'll try. You'll hear birds all through the record. Farrell smiles sweetly. Either birds being angels or birds being birds. Wing ones. It happens a lot by accident. Sounds just started to download onto the tape. Almost in every song you hear something that sounds kind of like a bird he chirps. Isn't that cool? Perry Farrell, as you may have gathered, is an unusual, unique, spiritual kind of guy. His friends would use words like beautiful, wise and loving to describe him. Others might say, with some justification, that the gangling loon is completely barking mad. Whatever your opinion, it has to be said that Perry Farrell is one hell of a cool guy. He gives off a huge happy aura and he's friendly and warm. One day, he just sat down and invented Lollapalooza as an alternative to the more traditional summer festivals, placing sideshows, galleries, and all manner of whacked-out mind-expanding attractions alongside some of the hottest new bands around. Farrell has recently distanced himself from the festival and is reportedly miffed, to say the least, that this year the event will be headlined by Metallica. Regardless, Farrell remains proud of his original intentions. Last year I worked real hard to get it to be interesting, he says. We had different things like art galleries and film tents. The band lineup was alright. The bands weren't all my first choices, he concedes. We had a lot of problems. Some of the bands that played I really loved. It's a lot more difficult than you'd expect to get things the way you want them. I probably won't work on Lollapalooza again. I feel I've got to go with something else. And I can't pull it off uh, through Lollapalooza. I have to arrange things if I'm going to put shows on which I'm still interested in doing. I have to mix things up. I want to try new formats and new ideas. It doesn't necessarily have to be that size or that shape. I'm going to try something else. Perry Farrell idolises his older brother who customises cars and bikes. His mother taught love for all and bought his sister ethnic dolls instead of suburban Ken and Barbie models. The Farrell father was a skilled goldsmith. 
love, imagination and creation enveloped young Perry. It seems almost inevitable that this happy hippie upbringing would lead to experimentation with drugs. I'm turning so funny about drugs these days, Farrell says openly. It's like food. I'm sure it's good for you, but when you put hormones in animals and don't raise the animal properly, what you'll get is all the fear that's in that animal's muscles. That's why no one should eat meat. I want people to be healthier so that their body likes them and they like everybody else. Right. No one is allowing people to be educated about drugs. It's causing people to have problems for the rest of their life. I've kind of flip-flopped on my ideas about drugs and what I'm trying to do is stay away from them. For now, I prefer to drink great wine. I know that people really love the wine that they're making. They have a great pride about it. Farrell pauses, thinks for a second, then he's off on one again. I smoke good pot. Occasionally, I'll do other drugs, but it doesn't always make me happy. I think to myself, if I could conquer coke and heroin, if only I could conquer it in the way of doing it, but never wanting it too much and always remembering to love everything and to not hurt myself. And if only they can educate kids they don't do an excessive amount too many days in a row because your body will hurt and then for the rest of your life you'll have these recurring problems. I think that it's possible to do drugs or drugs if the intention from the beginning was right, if it was to make people feel euphoric. The Who's Pete Townsend once said that you should always do your best at whatever you do and then leave the rest to God. That's a beautiful saying says Farrell sounded a little moved. God's a funny word. I look at the spirit guides that are above us and they're special friends with your relatives that watch you and care about you. If you believe that spirits can come into your subconscious, they can whisper things. So even a mugger about to rob some a guy might hear the words, don't mug him, he's cool, move on. It could be that simple. Not surprisingly, the death of Nirvana singer Kurt Cobain made Farrell reevaluate some of his thoughts and attitudes. He also had an encounter about two years ago regarding suicide that deeply moved him. A spirit once told me never to commit suicide. The spirit told me that when you kill yourself, you don't go to the exact area you think you will. It's like a meandering of the inner spirit, where you're in a space where you're half on the earth and half not. Anyway, Farrell winks, this is where this particular spirit was. I said to her, who'd know the difference? You know what she said? No. She said, your soul knows. Woof woof. After a hiatus in Kerrang for the past couple of weeks, it's quite nice to be back with singles. So uh, for me, it's always good to hear Spin the Black Circle by Pearl Jam. And this year, I've got to say that the singles in Kerrang have been incredible. Uh, quite a lot of times, some of the singles have actually been better than the entire albums. But we've, this really has been a vintage year for great singles in Kerrang. I mean, some of the weeks of stuff that we've had have just been incredible. This week, there are some great singles reviews. So let's crack into it. The singles this week are reviewed by Claire Douse. The first single reviewed is Juvenile Scene Detective by Compulsion. This gets free case. The obvious single from current LP, The Future is Medium. Juvenile Scene Detective is Compulsion's patented agit pop at its most rabble-rousing, complete with cheeky organ break and Joseph Mary's engaging sneer. Knock off a K for pandering to commerciality on CD2 with all those wanky remixes though. After them with that pistol. Next we have the single, Just A Girl by No Doubt. This gets 1k, oh dear. Horribly twee, US, middle of the road, pop rock from Bush's label mates and current touring partners and future wives. Cheesy, vacuous and thoroughly predictable, those gratuitous reggae tinges, ugh. And worse still, singer Gwen Stefani manages to sound like Geddy Lee, avoid. 
ZZ Top with their single What's Up With That. This gets 2Ks. Creaking, brain-numbing formula blues rock from the Texan trio who seem to have been churning out the same old barroom riff since before any of the Crane staff were old enough to drink. Yes, even Malcolm Dome. While die-hard fans will want this for the top's first live track since Fandango, the rest of you can shuffle along if you must. But the bearded granddads of Boogie really are sounding long past their sell-by date. Red Light Green Light by The Wild Hearts. This one gets 4Ks. Red Light Green Light is one of the highlights of The Wild Hearts' current live set and sounds even better standing alone as the new single, with a super catchy chorus that grabs you round the throat rather like ginger and demands to be aired on daytime radio. As usual, the prolific quartet have three brand new tracks on the B-side, making this a value for money purchase for all fans. Small side note here about the single Red Light Green Light. If anyone can track it down, the video for this is absolutely brilliant. I remember watching Headbangers Ball one night, uh, obviously, back when this came out, and the, the entire video is just a light bulb that flashes from red to green. And at some point during it, like when the song is going, at some point I thought the video was gonna cut to like the Wild Hearts playing in a studio or playing live or something like that. And it doesn't, the entire like, whatever it is, two or three minutes long, it's just this light bulb in a dark room, just going red and green. It's absolutely brilliant. It's, it's, it's pointless, it's stupid. It's not a video, but it's a video. It's br Check it out. It's, yeah, you, you'll see what I mean when you see it. Anyway, back to the singles. Tatva by Cooler Shaker. This one gets two Ks. Overhyped, hippie, trippy meanderings from the rising pop rockers shortly to be seen supporting presidents of the USA. For young pups, the London four-piece have wasted too many days ingesting the Beatles and ELO intravenously. Get a fucking grip. Green Day, with their single Brain Stew Jaded. This gets 3Ks. In which the multi-platinum Californian punks appear to slow down, grow up and plod along in the tedious post-punk mire of Brain Stew. Until you kick into the frenetic snot blips of Jaded and you realise that Billy Joe and the lads were just kidding, like moving slow motion into a car crash. Def Leppard, with their single Work It Out, this gets 2Ks. Regular Leopard Saccharine Radio Fodder, except that this sounds more like Robert Palmer, their first single to feature the writing talents of guitarist Vivian Campbell. This will no doubt go top 10, but by the time the acoustic live version of hit ballad Two Steps Beyond shuffled in, you really wish they hadn't bothered. And the single of the week this week comes from Baby Chaos with their single Ignoramus. This gets 4Ks. After months of ridicule, Deputy Editor Mike Peak has finally been vindicated. The new Baby Chaos single is, in fact, the dog's bollocks. Ignoramus is a breezy blast of Brit rock, which perfectly complements the current heatwave and would have even your most miserable aged relatives skipping around the lounge with excitement. The guitars twist and turn and the chorus is so unbelievably infectious that you'll be singing it in your sleep for the rest of your life. This week's almost essential purchase. Don't die of ignorance. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Speeding through the desert in search of the enchanted rock, Morat wonders if that last cigarette was a good idea, especially when he's trapped in a van with Fu Manchu, the dangerous hippie-hating leaders of the new wave of stoner rock. We've been driving for hours, heading for the desert, trying to find a place called Enchanted Rock. 
It sounds like the title of a bad 70s metal album, but is apparently a vast boulder in the desert that looks like the surface of the moon, an ideal place for a photo session with spaced out Southern Californian four-piece Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu are the band who went on tour with Monster Magnet, the band famed for once spiking a whole audience with LSD and were disappointed by the headliner's lack of chemical intake. They released their first two albums, No One Rides For Free and Daredevil on Bong Load Records because they thought there might be some decent weed involved in the deal. In the back of the van, drummer Ruben Romano lights up a hash pipe and launches into another drug story. Welcome to the dishevelled, unkempt and probably uncool world of Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu are not a band who care about cool. The quartet count the Black Crows and White Zombie among their fans and are being touted by many as the long-awaited replacement for the much-missed Caius. Oh man, that's not good, sized vocalist guitarist Scott Hill. I've heard that a couple of times and we like them, but we're not here to be Caius. We'll take their fans though, grinned guitarist Eddie Glass. There are definitely similarities, however, the wonderful bass rumble, the hash addled groove, the strange lyrics. I think the lyrics are pretty cool, says Ruben, but they need to be printed. Nah, shrugged Scott, the man who writes them. I think it's better if people don't know and they make them up themselves. If you had a lyric sheet, you'd be like, this guy's retarded. You have to know us. It's just stupid stuff because one line doesn't match the next line. It just jumps around. If people can make up something, that's cool. What's the weirdest interpretation anyone's come up with so far? Scott grinned. Our second record, Daredevil, had a doom buggy on the front and people asked if that was influenced by Charles Manson just because Manson used to cruise around in dune buggies. We'd never even thought about it, but we thought that was cool. Like most things in Fu Manchu's world, it's not nearly as complicated as it seems. The new album's called In Search Of because it's named after a science fiction TV program hosted by Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock in Star Trek, and the band's fascination with big old 70s muscle cars. It's just the obvious shrug, Scott. It's because they're cool. I love those cars. I want a Dodge Challenger. But those cost like $17,000. And the thing about having a rad car is that if you drive it every day, it's going to break down. Cars are just something to write about. If you're reading a lot into Fu Manchu's music, you're probably looking too hard. Maybe you should drink, smoke, crank it up and bang your head. Lately, says Scott, we've been getting some heavy metal kids doing air guitar in front of us, which is great. Everyone else thinks it's dumb, but we're like, yeah. There is no one type of person that comes to see us. We don't really care who comes to see us. We hate hippies though, adds Eddie. Yeah, agrees Scott vehemently. We don't like hippies and peace and love are all that hippie shit. I don't like mellow stuff. I've never liked it ever since I was young. If it wasn't for the guitar sound, I wouldn't want anything to do with music. I just like heavy stuff, not wimpy pussy shit. Even when you're chilling out, especially not then, sneers Scott. There follows a fierce argument between Eddie and Scott about whether old hippie band the 13th floor elevators are hippie shit or not. I didn't get into Sabbath or anything till about 1989, reveals Eddie. Finally, I was into punk bands like Black Flag, uh, Circle Jerks, Sex Pistols and stuff like that. I hated heavy metal and long hair. I still do. I'm just lazy. That's why I don't cut my hair. But we got sick of the punk shit when we first started playing. Everything was too fast and then we smoked a little weed and it was like something new. Despite a hatred for hippies, it seems that Fu Manchu don't mind being called a stoner band. I don't care if people get stoned and listen to the record, grins Eddie. I get stoned, weed is nothing. Weed is like alcohol. Now, if you shoot heroin to it, can you actually play when you're stoned? Not too stoned, smiles Eddie knowingly. You can't get too fucked up. Because if you're too stoned, you can't control your amplifiers and everything sounds fucking weird. 
I like to get a little higher. I like everything except heroin. I don't like psychedelics anymore because I've done too many. I don't need to be there again. I hate cocaine too because it makes you wig down. And then five minutes later, you're going off to find some more. It's never enough. We never did find Enchanted Rock or even the desert. Later, we sat outside in the night air watching the rednecks go by as lightning splits the sky. The Fu Manchu think these straight people will understand their music. We're not hard to understand, says Scott. I don't think we're more complicated than other bands. Eddie grins and swigs at his beer. I think even an idiot could understand us. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. Albums, and the first album reviewed this week is You Wanted the Best, You Got the Best by Kiss. This one is reviewed by Paul Elliott and this gets 3Ks. So why should anyone give a shit about Kiss in 1996? Yes, they're headlining Donington this year, but only due to the nostalgia and novelty value of the four original band members reuniting in full face makeup for the first time since the early 80s. Donington promises to be one hell of a show. In the 70s, the Kiss experience was rightly held as the greatest show on earth, but there's more to Kiss than fireworks. There's the music, and while it's true that Kiss haven't made a great record for more than a decade, they made enough in the 70s to influence every American rock band from Nirvana and the Smashing Pumpkins to White Zombie and Nine Inch Nails. Not to mention Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Raging the Machine and so on. These bands might not sound like Kiss, but all were teenage Kiss freaks. It's the American way. Why did so many of the coolest rock stars of 1996 dig Kiss when they were kids? Simple. They were comic book superheroes and rock and roll stars, all rolled into one big glittery package. What could be better? Kiss was so over the top, they made White Zombie look like Soundgarden. Moreover, Kiss knew how to write a rock anthem. Their enormous back catalogue is full of the damn things. Banging party tunes like Rock and Roll All Night and Shout It Out Loud. These and many more Kiss classics are featured on this compilation of live tracks, some previously available, some not. You Wanted the Best draws from Kiss's legendary double live albums, Alive and Alive 2 Records, which turned Kiss into the biggest band in America circa 1977. It's not a bad idea putting together the very best tracks from these albums, plus four previously unissued cuts to tempt Kiss completists. But the selection and sequencing of these songs is frankly amateurish. Firstly, there are too many classic songs missing to justify a title like You Wanted the Best, where for God's sake is Detroit Rock City or God of Thunder. Secondly, the running order of the tracks is nonsensical. Songs from different albums are thrown together without a thought for flow or atmosphere. Lastly, the previously unreleased tracks aren't much cop. Although Take Me does boast the top opening couplet, put your hand in my pocket, grab on my rocket. In short, You Wanted the Best is a bit of a mess. If you really want to know why Kiss were dubbed the hottest band in the world, by themselves admittedly, just get the original Alive and Alive 2 albums. And as for Donington, it's surely a last throw of the dice for Kiss. The old lineup is bound to break up again once the money from this tour is banked, and then what? Back to the mediocrity of the past 15 years? You wanted the best? It happened 20 years ago. The next album reviewed this week is Temptation by Dearly Beheaded. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this one gets 3Ks. As much as we love our breezy power pop with loud guitars and harmonies a go-go, someone has to fire a nail gun at Brit Rock every now and again. 
Dearly Beheaded's name alone tells you where they're coming from, even though it's the kind of ludicrous moniker that people still think all rock bands have. The Stockport Slashers find themselves in the unusual uh, position of having little direct competition in this country. Everybody else has traded in their ultra metal head fuck guitar pedals for a simple fuzz box, a bright t-shirt and some smiles. Although Dearly Beheaded draw much of their pump action riffage from Vulgar Display era Pantera and Machine Heads Burn My Eyes, they could hardly be further from Vogue. All credit to them for being unfashionable, and Temptation is generally a sterling debut, forged to perfection by producer Colin Richardson, the man who helped make Machine Heads Burn My Eyes um, and Fear Factory's Demanufacture so face-rippingly special. This album boasts a similar level of gutsy dry clarity, with the emphasis on uh, big guitars and drums, and sonically it's hard to fault. It could be argued that Dearly Beheaded sound dated, thanks in large part to Alex Creamer's semi-operatic style. He still retains aggression, however, and there are some cracking songs here. Temptation itself lurches brutally along with a kind of irresistible riff that sets mosh pits ablaze, and its chorus My God Is High and So Am I has to be applauded for its sheer comic effect. The excellent We Are Your Family sees the band yank their fresh roots right out of the closet and really go for it. Then there's the opening behind the sun and the bloody rampage of Break My Bones, which crash in with zero respect for the neighbours. Elsewhere though, the band lose momentum. Every so often the song will drag, failing to take your brain hostage like it should. Between Night and Day is a six minute slab of Sabbath-esque soul, but its style has long been overplayed, at least on the stereo. Leaving them all behind moves at a similar pace and is also a shade past the sell-by date. Let's stress that, in the main, this is electrifying stuff, but if Dearly Beheaded can stick the course, their second album should be all the more tempting. Next this week, we have the album The Craving by MD45. Reviewed by Morat, this one gets 2Ks. The collaboration between Megadeth guitarist mouthpiece Dave Mustaine and Lee Ving, leader of legendary LA punk sphere, has been talked about for some years. At the time, the notion of two cults possibly a misprint there, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, colliding seemed like an interesting idea. Punk rock, though still getting stronger, was still as unfashionable as Phil Alexander's cardigans. And for such a leading light of the metal scene as Mustaine to stick his neck out and support the genre was still a risk, albeit a small one. Things have moved on since then. Just about every bugger's had a poke at punk rock. Slayer, Megadeth's co-headliners on the Clash of the Titans tour have released a whole album of punk covers, which means that in 1996, MD45 are little more than a novelty outfit. Love them or loathe them, it's only the fact that both Mustaine and Ving have strong characters, big egos and reputations to match that makes this album worth a listen. Sadly, that's about as interesting as it gets. Despite the album being named after Mustaine's struggle with addiction and the fact that the MD in the band's name apparently relates to his other outfit's initials, it's difficult to tell whose input was the stronger here. Mustaine might have refrained from supplying his nasal wine, but his guitar sound is as distinctive as ever, and there are one or two startlingly good, if perhaps dated riffs. Meanwhile, Ving's vocals are as easy to identify, though not quite as hard-edged as usual. He exhibits a strange tendency to warble for some reason, but the lyrics are nowhere near his usual contentious, obnoxious, brilliantly un-PC best. 
But frankly, who gives a toss when the end result is material like Fight Hate or My Town, songs that sound like a dodgy Fear outtake and Wolfsbane on a bad night respectively. This potentially fiery collaboration, which could have gone up in flames considering that Mustaine has had well-publicised battles with the bowl and the needle, while Ving is the man responsible for fear tracks like Legalised Drugs, More Beer, Free Beer, I believe I'll have another beer and well, you get the idea, is about as explosive as a box of damp matches. And at times, that combination is just plain silly. Hearing Lee Ving singing patently Mustaine-penned lyrics about the demons of addiction during no pain when the current fear opus is titled Have Another Beer With Fear will hardly inspire a great deal of abstinence when you next fancy a swift one down your local. Of the two, it's Ving who has more to gain from this disappointing outing. Curious Megadeth fans might like his style and check out the new fear opus, but the reverse is extremely unlikely. Either way, the craving won't have anyone going cold turkey for more. Next this week we have a couple of shorter reviews, so I'll start with Jawbox with their album Jawbox. This one is reviewed by Paul Brannigan and this gets 4Ks. More intelligent post-hardcore blasting from Washington DC. No longer stuck in Fagazi's shadow, the perennially underrated Jawbox have delivered an excellent album with sophisticated angular guitars, offsetting Jay Robbins' poetic lyrical vignettes. The quartet songs are snappy and sussed, diamond hard melodies washing up against clattering rhythms to potent effect. One listen to Won't Come Off and Empire of One and you'll wonder why this lot aren't stars already. Next we have the album Demonstrating My Style by Madball, reviewed by Jason Arnott, this gets 2Ks. This New York bunch are actually demonstrating something of a revamped style on this, their second outing. The scales are tipped more towards metal than hardcore this time around with guitars chugging in a vaguely biohazard-esque fashion. It's a sturdy enough effort, but rendered sadly inessential by a lack of originality and a hefty dose of repetition. Demonstrating my style will no doubt go down as a treat live, but Madball's style is ultimately far too faceless for their own good. And finally this week, we have the album Placebo by Placebo. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan again, this one gets 4Ks. Last year, this trio caused fierce scrapping amongst the A&R community and on this evidence, it's easy to see why. Hailing from the distinctly unrock and roll climbs of Luxembourg, helium voice vocalist guitarist Brian Molko mixes driving inventive guitars with delicate post-goth melodies to create a unique, deliciously fresh vision. From the androgynous swagger of Nancy Boy to the dynamic rattle of Come Home, this is rock music boldly blazing into a new millennium. Gorgeous. Charts and the number one album this week is still Load by Metallica. Number one in the singles charts is still Until It Sleeps Metallica and number one in the Indie LPs charts is still 1977 by Ash. The reader's top 10 this week comes from the Grim Hunter of Athens. Their chart begins one Roots Bloody Roots Sepultura, two Weight of Existence, Fear Factory, three House of Clouds, uh, Giza, four While You Sleep, I Destroy Your World, Nail Bomb, five Coma Overkill, six Once Solemn Paradise Lost, seven Angel of Death Slayer, eight Blood for Blood Machine, nine Mouth for War Pantera, and ten Devoured by Vermin by Cannibal Corpse. Star Tracks this week comes from Nick Happy Holmes of Paradise Lost. His chart begins one Down on the Upside Soundgarden, two Lorena's McKennett's new albums, uh, three Blank Blackout Poison Idea, 4 Braveheart Original Soundtrack and 5 War of the Time Poison Idea. 
Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues, music for the jilted generation, Fear Factory and The Prodigy. Are these bands about to change your life? Plus fucking hard floor when extreme metal meets tribal techno. Four artwork posters, The Wild Hearts, Metallica, Biohazard, Kiss, Ash, Arsehole in Amsterdam, I Still Wear Dresses, Mannix, Nicky Wire Comes Clean, Bon Jovi, Take the Kerrang! Challenge, plus Screaming Trees Feeder, ZZ Top, Chilies, Manhole, Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam. Blimey, a lot to get through next week. Um, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual. I look forward to talking to you all then. Bye for now.